Welcome to Music and the Church, a podcast that brings you insight into today's diverse worship landscape by connecting the dots between beliefs and practices so that you can have a happier, healthier ministry. Today, we're discussing musical training for priests and other aspects of Orthodox music with our special guest, Harrison Russen, and our Try This at Church, except on last week's episode about shaping music for specific seasons of the church year. Hi, this is Sarah Bariza, a researcher and church musician living in Cincinnati, Ohio. And I'm Crawford Wiley, an organist just outside of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. This week, we're hearing from Harrison Russen, who is a lecturer in liturgical music and a dean's fellow at St. Vladimir's Orthodox Theological Seminary in Yonkers, New York. And he's also a PhD candidate in music at Duke University. We'll be discussing a variety of issues related to Orthodox music. First up, um, discussing musical training for priests, and uh, spoiler alert, six semesters of musical training. I was floored when he told me that. That's great. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right? Um, That is a lot of musical training. The next thing we'll be discussing is directing choirs in non-metrical music. So that's not just Orthodox chant, but psalm tones and other kinds of chant you know, a variety of musical traditions. How do you direct a choir in something that isn't metered? Then third, we're going to do a survey of the types of Orthodox music you can hear in churches in the U.S., which is a lot. I think outside of Orthodoxy, there's a general sense that there's just the Greek Orthodox Church and then, I don't know, the Rachmaninoff Vespers or something. Right, right, right. Yeah, there are a lot of streams of Orthodox music that are active here in the U.S., largely because of the many immigrant populations here in the U.S. So lots of different kinds of Orthodox music. If you'd like to find out more about Orthodox music, you can check out this week's show notes at musicandthechurch.com slash 11. There's a list of about 10 composers to check out, as well as a link to the International Society for Orthodox Church Music. And finally, we're going to talk about instruments in the Orthodox tradition, especially organs in Greek Orthodox churches in the U.S. And this last segment about instruments and why or why not to use them in worship sets up a topic that Crawford and I are going to return to next week, which is what leaders in the early church had to say about music and what kinds of influence their beliefs have on our present-day services. And they have a lot to say. (laughs) Oh my word, they have so much. In Orthodoxy, these leaders have a huge influence on music, but that's not actually the case in most churches today. So come back next week for episode 12, and we'll return to this subject. But before the interview with Harrison, let's look at this week's Try This at Church. So last week, we were talking about music in Lent and how to shape your music so that you set Lent apart as a musically distinct season of the year. One of our listeners wrote in to talk about this idea of liturgical color, and here we're using color as a metaphor for musical timbre. Right. We're not discussing synesthesia, so this isn't actually seeing the color purple everywhere. Yes, yes. We're talking about musical timbre, and oftentimes color is a metaphor for timbre. So Stephen said, I put the big reeds on hold until Easter. I'm not reticent about registrations, but I saved the party horn for the actual party. At a different church, I used to give up the mixtures as well. I still had plenty of leadership brightness, but it made for a different liturgical color for the season. And this actually reminded me of how at Christmas time, I'm much more likely to pull on the Celeste than I am at other seasons of the year. And it has a different liturgical color, a different musical timbre for the season of Christmas. Yeah, I think during Lent, I tend to use just the eight-foot Stops. Of course, we have a lot of them on the shots at St. Jude, so it's not a, it's not an underfed sound. But obviously, mm-hmm. you'd want to you'd want to vary all of this depending on your individual church. Yeah, and the and the musical resources that you have. I actually realized that I've been 
without thinking of it in terms of liturgical color, I've been planning on using the piano more in services during Lent as a simpler kind of sound. Right, right. Yeah, for this last Sunday, we really went all out with the Alleluias, and there was a oh, distinctly yeah, right? festive, festive tone to it. Hopefully there's a, a marked and even audible, you know, to just people sitting in the pew, contrast between that final Sunday of Ordinary Time and then Lent. Mm -hmm. And then when you get to Easter Sunday in a lot of churches, that's when they hire the brass, hire the timpani. If you haven't hired your brass players, hire them now. It's probably already too late by now. <laughs> already too late. But but yeah, that's it's a big contrast that helps set apart, that does, it, it, it reaches people in another kind of way. We have colors, we have readings, we have prayers, we have all these different kinds of things. And with music and musical timbre, we can shape the way people experience services and experience the seasons of the liturgical year. Yes, yes. This kind of ties into what we were talking about last week with changing a mass setting to certain seasons of the year. And if you're evoking certain colors musically, that can be another cue to the congregation because we want, we want to surround people with sensory experiences in church, not just intellectual ones. So there you have it. Think of liturgical color as a way to shape your musical timbre during the different seasons of the church year. Next up, Harrison Russen describing the musical training MDiv students receive at St. Vladimir's Orthodox Theological Seminary. So the way the program's oriented right now is our primary focus is training clergy. And because we are Russian Orthodox, or just Orthodox in general, Music is, is a very important part of the worship service. So I don't intimately know the curricula of other seminaries, but I, I think it's pretty unusual to have six semesters required of music. Is that for every student? Every MDiv student has to take six semesters of music. Okay, so basically everyone who's going to be a priest via St. Vlad's is taking six semesters of Exactly, music. yeah. We have a track, which is flexible. The first year starts with uh, an introduction, so vocal production essentially, uh, an introduction to using your voice. Then we introduce the, the tones of the Russian Orthodox tradition, specifically as used by the Orthodox Church in America, the OCA. And then the third year is a conducting class. Oh, is the tones the second year? Tones is second semester and third semester. And then the fourth semester, again, is, is a vocal production. So it, we have a bookend in that sense of, uh, of tones in the middle. Well, you can do vocal production while singing tones then. Yeah. So in addition to those um, six semesters, every semester, every student in a music class is uh, also required to take to come to choir rehearsal. Okay. So that's how you have like people in the choir. Exactly. Yeah. It's a way of ensuring that everyone sings in choir. Which is important for Orthodox churches that they have a choir. Like that's like, like if you're training people for ministry, they need to be familiar with choir. Exactly. Yeah. What I just described is for our OCA students, Orthodox Church in America, which St. Vladimir's is an OCA seminary. But you have people from other traditions who go there, right? Exactly. So we have um, a large number of students from the Antiochian Archdiocese, and those students take their own music classes, uh, which are in Byzantine chant, mm -hmm. but they also have to take, uh, or not take, but, but come to our choir rehearsals and yeah. sing in our choir. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of an overview of our curriculum. So what it sounds like is it's almost or completely exclusively focused on practice and nothing in there is like theology of music. Why do we have music? Why is it like this? Exactly. Or, or history of music, any of those sorts of issues. Exactly. I should be very clear because you can't see my face. That's not at all a criticism. That's a, like a, oh, that's what the focus is in what you're doing. Right. Right. So in the Orthodox worship services, everything is sung. I mean, very rarely do we just 
sit there and read a text uh, in our reading voice. It, it's usually chanted on a mm -hmm. single note or maybe, you know, perhaps mm -hmm. a more florid arrangement, something like that. And yeah. oh. I think there are a lot of different reasons for that, maybe historical as well, because your voice projects better when it's chanting. Uh, and, you know, modern amplification helps things mm -hmm. now. But if you are looking for ordination as a priest or as a deacon, you need to be able to sing. You need to be able to chant in that, you know, in that way, whether it's as simply as you can or as florid as you can. Also, importantly, you need to be able to, to be in sync with whatever choir or chanter or whatever music you have in your church. And that, that's a large, that maybe the primary goal of our musical education here is, is to help clergy be able to, if they're not going to at least lead the music, to be able to at least follow the music. Do you want to move to talking about directing choirs? Yeah, sure. In chant or in non-metrical music? Because you've done this a lot. And musicians who are trained in choral conducting at an undergraduate level have little or usually no experience in being taught how to direct non-metrical mu mm -hmm. music, which is hard if you're in an Orthodox church or if you are leading a psalm tone in a Lutheran church or an Episcopal church, right. or just you want to teach your, your choir a chant. And do you have thoughts about how to go about that? I'll first state that I am not a trained choir director. I don't have any degrees in choir conducting. Uh, I took one semester of conducting as an undergraduate, and I've audited the conducting classes here at the seminary taught by mm -hmm. Robin. Yeah. So, but you do direct the choir, don't you? I do direct the choir, so I have a lot of experience yeah. as a director. I'll default to what, how Robin explains things, that there are two essential approaches to directing non-metrical chant. And one she, Robin calls, I don't know if there's an official title for this, but she calls it loopy swoopy, which <laughs> is uh, essentially moving your hands in circular motions. And the actress would then reach, uh, it w would be on the accented words. And that's at the bottom? Yeah. So where your hand drops would be an accented word. Um okay. And the method which I use and which Robin uses is, and, and I think a lot of people who have training as Western choir conductors, is kind of a, a mix of traditional conducting patterns. So a four pattern and a three pattern and a two pattern would be the most common. And so I, if it's a recitational text, for example, Lord, I call upon thee, hear me. So that I call upon thee, that, that's recitational. That doesn't need to be conducted as deliberately. You know, mm -hmm. you could act, obviously accent the operative words there. Lord, I call upon thee. That'd be a, a, an important word. Yeah. But then when you reach the end of the phrase, you can enter probably a two pattern. So, so it's a combination of accenting the important words and then ending and beginning the phrases in uh, obvious patterns. I think that's the best way to do it, at least in the Orthodox tradition. What are you doing with your hand on the call upon thee? So just just a little downward accentuation. Lord, I call upon thee. And then back into the pen. Hear me. Yeah. Lord, I call upon thee. Hear me. Yeah. And then up on mm -hmm. here and down on me. Hmm. How about teaching a choir to feel that non-metrically? Yeah. In my experience, it's been actually difficult to help a choir feel because you're you know you're working with fifteen people right. or whatever, and you want them to feel that call upon thee. Right. That that's. I, I mean, I'm not an expert in Russian music, uh, mm -hmm. but from what I understand, Russian music uh, or or the Slavonic language doesn't require accentuation the same way the English language does. Oh. So in Russian, it's very easy to have one block of text read all in the same way, or sung all in the same way, on the same note with no accentuation. And people can still understand it. Right, sounding almost like, a, like you know, we jokingly call it the typewriter. <laughs> Whereas in English, word order, word accentuation, syllabic accentuation is really important to understand the meaning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we've developed here, especially at the seminary, this, this way of singing which and directing, which highlights 
words within the sentence. I could pull up a text to try to demonstrate. Um, uh, so this would be tone 8. The King of Heaven, because of his love for man, appeared on earth and dwelt with man. So you have this, you have one sentence there. You could choose to set that all as one sentence. The King of Heaven, because of his love for man, appeared on earth and dwelt with man. Which is really hard to listen to. As the person who set this text did, I, I think it's better to you do it and you know break it up into two lines. And and then you have to figure out which words to accent. Here, this person has chose to accent king and love and dwelt, which I think are all good choices because those are very important words within that sentence. You you know you wouldn't un you wouldn't underline with these prepositions or articles. And then the next question is how do you phrase that within this recitational pattern? The king of heaven because of his love for man. A lot of parish choirs would perhaps just sing that very straightly. The king of heaven because of his love for man. I'm exaggerating, but an approach to both singing the music and directing the music that really highlights how the words mean, I think is the most important part of, of orthodox music conducting or and chant conducting in general, because mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, what, what does St. Paul say? I'm a, I'm a clanging cymbal, a noisy gong. So it seems like actually what you're saying is, is teaching the choir to know what are the stressed words. Yeah. And everything else flows from that. And that, that's aided by the fact that we sing everything in English. Uh, if we were singing Slavonic, that would be much more difficult. A lot of parishes that have not changed to English, I think, face those issues that they don't have a full understanding of what they're singing. Or, or Latin, uh, I think that's equally, can be equally difficult to really yeah. be able to accentuate the proper words. It's also thinking about what does it mean to stress a word? Because you can do that with volume, you can do that with length. I suppose there's also, is it, is it called a Nagajic accent where you have like a little space exactly. before and after? Yeah. Something we do in organ where you where you break slightly. Yeah, that, that is a Gajic. And I feel like as a choir director, you also have to explain what you mean by stressed because in chanted music, usually what we mean by the stress is length, not so much volume. So let's, let's talk about types of Orthodox churches. Like if you were to go to Orthodox churches in America today, not Orthodox church in America, but like in America churches in the States, what, what, kind of, what kinds of music would you experience and where is it coming from? Yeah, uh, to, just to preface, I'm not an expert in Orthodox music history or anything, but so th there are two broad streams in America. There is the Byzantine or the Syro-Byzantine tradition, which you'll find or hear mostly in Greek Orthodox churches and Antiochian and other Arab Orthodox churches. And there is the Slavic music tradition, which you'll find in the Orthodox Church in America, which has Slavic background. Not all OCA parishes, but most, I think, would use the Slavic music and other churches of Russian backgrounds, uh, Russian Orthodox Church outside Russia, uh, Moscow Patriarchate churches. There are other traditions that you'll uh, encounter not not very frequently, uh, Romanian Orthodox music. I'm not really familiar with the history of the Romanian Orthodox musical tradition. I think, at least in the OCA, there are, I think, 60 Romanian parishes. Uh, there's a Romanian monastery near Pittsburgh called the Monastery of the Transfiguration, and they, they use mm -hmm. some uh, Romanian chant, which is, is quite, it was quite beautiful. There's also the South Slavic uh, countries, uh, the Balkan countries like Serbia, their, their church language is Slavonic. Uh, I believe the dominant musical tradition there is Byzantine. Mm -hmm. And then there's also the Georgian musical tradition. You won't hear that much sung in America, except by mostly converts who like Georgian music. Mm -hmm. 
There are a few Georgian parishes in the, in America, but they're mostly in big cities where there are a lot of immigrants. Like Philadelphia has one. I think New York has one. But in general, um, it's mostly Byzantine and Slavic. Now, within the Slavic tradition, especially in the OCA and in, in Rokor as well, and I think in the Moscow Patriarchate, though I don't have as much experience there, most of the music there comes from this four-part version of Russian chant, abbreviated Russian chant, that was popularized in the 19th century, and it earned the title Ovihod, which in uh, Russian or in Slavonic means usual or common. And there was the, the official synodal composer was a composer by the name of Lvov, and his successor was another composer named Bakhmetev. So you'll often see it called the Lvov Bakhmetev Ovihod. And they promulgated and popularized and published this version of Russian music in four parts. And that was, at least from my understanding, was actually originally intended for the uh, St. Petersburg Imperial Chapel. And all, all of the chapels and churches under the, under the direct control of the emperor, of the Tsar of Russia, which numerically wasn't that many, but it just became so popular that it, it, it caught on almost like wildfire. And you know, within, I don't know, 50 to 60 years, the Obihod was one of the dominant musical traditions in Russian Orthodox church music. It's very singable. It is. It is. It's, it combines uh, elements of Slavic, traditional Slavic chant. So the traditions there are the um, Kievan tradition and the um, Znameni tradition. And they're, they're all, all these different kinds of, of Slavic chant. And it combines those with Western four-part harmony. So, Although we, we should say it's not Western in the sense of falling like common practice era part writing. No, it is entirely homophonic. <laughs> In general, they follow most of the Western conventions. I rarely do find parallel fifths, although occasionally I do find parallel fifths. There's actually a dissertation from Finland written about this by a Finnish scholar named Jopi Hari. You could find it all on his academia.edu website. He's really published and presented a lot of papers on this. And from what I recall, he's detailed that the development was from a three-part version to a four-part version. There are three-part versions even as uh, early as the 18th century, I think in the 1780s, I think there were even three-part versions. Um, and that developed into these four-part versions, which we know today. If you listen to our four-part versions, the chant is still there, most most often in the alto line. So for example, in, in tone eight, which I was just singing, I was singing the alto line because that's the original chant melody. The king of heaven because of his love for man. And then you Take that and you, you harmonize it with a third above, which would be the soprano line. The king of heaven because of his love for man. And the tenor line. The king of heaven. And the bass line. The king of heaven. So mm -hmm. you're embellishing that chant line. And in order to do that, often the chant line gets abbreviated or sometimes it gets elongated. Uh, one example would be um, tone three, troparian cadence has this really great embellishment at the end. Da, 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 uh, I've looked in some of the earlier chant books and it's that that embellished cadence isn't there. So that that four-part tradition really became popular in 19th century Russia. The monophonic tradition never completely died out. It was well it was uh, and still to this day is the I, I believe the only musical tradition in the old believer rite. And the Old Believers were a group who, uh, there are different ways of putting it, but they split off from the, from the Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, the Moscow Patriarchate, under the Nikonian reforms in the 17th century. And they've preserved a much longer, elaborate, uh, <laughs> slower liturgy 
uh, you know, their liturgy takes like three or four hours. Their vigil will last for four hours. It's it's a very deliberate tradition, and they they are still entirely monophonic. Is there very much old old believer in the U.S.? No, there's one parish in Erie. I've never been there, uh, and they are they're actually canonical. They're in the Russian Orthodox Church outside Russia. Okay. And I've never been there, but I know I I have friends who have gone, and and it is one of the few places you can go in America and hear an entire entire liturgy song and chant. But e- even on the eve of the revolution, there was a very popular book published called the uh, Sputnik Psalomchika, which means the psalm singers, a psalomchik is a psalm singer or, or um, a psalm reader. The psalomchik's companion of Sputnik is a companion. It also means satellite, ironically. And that, that book was published, I think the first one was published early 1900s, and it went through like three editions, even like 1914, like, you know, Right on the eve of World War One and the revolution, they were still publishing this book. And then that became popular as Russians were fleeing. That's a book that they would have brought with them. Yeah, yeah, especially to, to France and China. A, lo- a lot of Russians went to uh, to Shanghai and to Paris. It's still published in facsimile editions. Um, and that's that's another very important book. But in general, the, the musical tradition you'll hear in Slavic churches in America is this Obi Hood four-part music. Oh, you know what? And actually, I left out another significant tradition, which is my wife's background, Gabrielle's background, uh, which is the uh, Ruthenian, uh, or it, it's called by different names, the, uh, but the uh, Ruthenian or Galician or Carpatho-Russian musical tradition. And they have their own set of tones. There is a little bit of overlap with the uh, the, the Russian tradition, but in general, it, it, it's very uh, beautiful and actually has more relation to folk song in, in some in some of its ways uh, some of its tones and several Byzantine Catholic churches will use that tradition and then there's also um, the American Carpatho Russian Archdiocese usually abbreviated ACROD and they use the Ruthenian musical tradition is Ruthenian is that a geographic location yeah yeah the late Austro-Hungarian Empire mo- modern day I think northwestern Ukraine Hungary Romania Slovakia Czech and uh, Poland, uh, like the, the Carpathian mountain area of Eastern Europe. Do you want to talk at all about Byzantine music? And I'm thinking about like here in the U.S., like sometimes you go to a Greek church and they also have an organ. Oh, yeah. Yeah, actually, uh, I, was, I wrote a paper when I was a student at St. Vlad's. I wrote a paper on the use of organ in Greek Orthodox churches. It, w- it wasn't a music paper, actually. It was, it was, I was looking at that as a way of looking at argument and debate within the Orthodox Church. Because, you know, on the one hand, a lot of people say, well, it's, it's not traditional. It's, you know, the, the Church Fathers and the, the canons explicitly ban instrumental music. Um, just as a side note, I don't, I don't think there's any canonical prohibition on instruments being used. But the, the usual go-to texts are, are um, statements from um, some of the fathers like uh, St. Basil and I think St. John Chrysostom talk about um, instruments shouldn't be allowed in worship. Uh, whereas on the other hand, a lot of prominent musicians in the Greek Orthodox Archdiocese point to a venerable tradition of, of the use of organ in, in Byzantine worship. They, they point to evidence of, of the existence of an organ at the uh, Church of Hagia Sophia in 
Constantinople. So in the one sense, both sides are, are appealing to antiquity, right? Which is, that's a pretty common argument, though, exactly. in orthodoxy. Yeah, like, yeah. Of course you're going to appeal yeah. to antiquity. If it's old, it's orthodox. The church yeah. fathers, yeah. But e- even from a, a more American historical perspective, there's evidence of organs in, in Greek Orthodox churches in America as early as 1900 in, uh, I think, in, in New Orleans. And then the, the, I think the second biggest, or the second, at least important church that had an organ was uh, Washington, the, the Greek cathedral in Washington uh, had an organ rather early on. And it's my understanding the organ isn't like, and now we will have our Bach postlude. No, it's usually not used only as an organ. It's usually used as accompaniment, kind of surprisingly or ironically, <laughs> most Greek churches sing in four-part music. Mm-hmm. A lot of Greek churches actually sing Slavic music. They don't always know it. But uh, Bortnianski, for example, who was a, um, I, I think, uh, 18th, 19th century Russian composer. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a student of the Italian composer Galupi. And uh, he, he his his music is is rather popular in uh, Greek Orthodox churches in America. There seems to be a a conservative pendulum right now in not just in um, the Greek Orthodox Church but in, in Orthodoxy in America. And some priests and parishes are moving away from the organ as a way of becoming more authentically Orthodox. You'll see this occasionally or read about it on the internet. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to me because it comes back to this idea of like, what is the point in music in the church? And can purely instrumental music glorify God in the context of a church service? Mm. Not that it can't otherwise, but in the context context of congregational worship, is there a place for purely instrumental music? By by purely instrumental, I don't mean arrangements where the tune is calling up a text in somebody's mind. And it seems that in Orthodoxy, that's unless you consider the bells part of it, which aren't really. I I don't know. Or maybe they are. What What do you think? Where do bells bells fit into here? Because those are not uh, those are those are wrong. They can be run in really wonderful intricate patterns, but um, it's not connected to a text in somebody's mind. But it's also not part of the worship service. It's a big question. I live so in this world of like, what should music be like? And in the Protestant world, there's a lot of flexibility for doing other right. things. You know, so so the question is, is like, what well, can you do the Bach prelude and right. fugue for your postlude, and does that glorify God in the sense of congregational worship? Right. Right. And it seems like in Orthodox. It wouldn't really fit within the theological understanding of what music does. Right, yeah. Or what music should be doing in a church Yeah, I mean, my my instinct is it just feels foreign to Orthodox worship. Orthodox worship is like a continual stream of talking, though, or or, of of text. It is, yeah. Um, There's not really silence, because in Catholicism, there's silence, right? And in Orthodoxy, there's not really a silence. There's like words constantly. There, I think there used to be silence. The great entrance used to be done in silence. And our, our one preservation of that is now on uh, Holy Saturday, the Vespers, uh, Vesperal Liturgy of Holy Saturday. The, the entrance hymn is now, Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence, which, you know, of course, we sing the entire time. So <laughs> <laughs> it kind yes. of defeats the purpose. The development of Byzantine worship in general is one where you're continually bombarded by more and more text. Whereas the worship of, you know, maybe the first millennium up, up to the ninth or 10th century was mostly psalmodic. You know, it was mostly based on psalms and scripture. In the 8th century, well, 7th, 8th century, you start to see this huge upsurge of, of hymnody being written. And, and that's our influenced Byzantine worship so much to the point where we privilege now the hymnody over scriptural writing. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those hymns, you know, even from the 8th century are still the hymns that we sing today. The, the Octoikos was mostly written in the 8th century. Mm-hmm. The, the funeral service was mostly written in the 8th century. And these, um, maybe, maybe 9th century. I might, I might be getting my dates wrong. 
or, or the, the genre of the canon and the Kontakion. These, these are early, very early genres that are non-scriptural, obviously. You know, they're, they're independent, be- you know, beautiful artistic rhetorical reflections on the meaning of the gospel and on the meaning of the feast and, and of the saint. But it's, 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 over time, it's, it's gradually precluded and, and pushed the scriptural aspect of our worship to the side. That's it for this week's episode of Music in the Church. Thanks to Harrison Russon for sharing his perspectives on Orthodox music making. Next week, Crawford and I will be picking up on this issue of music in the early church. I hope you'll join us. Get in touch. We love to hear from listeners. You can email us at musicandthechurch at gmail.com or leave a voicemail at 513-580-4282. And if you'd like to get our monthly newsletter, which goes out this coming Sunday, sign up at musicandthechurch.com slash sign up.